Well, today we're, we're going to start by talking about biting off more than you can chew. Um, I don't know. It feels like we've done that, even though we're at work. It's not like uh, anything different this Sunday. We're, we're used to our, our regular Sunday routines, and then every now and then things, things go awry, and, and uh, that's okay. But we're, we haven't bitten off more than you can chew. We can handle it. But it did, uh, I was thinking this week of a story, a time in my life, Back in biology 11 class, um, I was sitting in class, our teacher, Mr. Pereira, was teaching away something about molecules or something. I wasn't really paying attention. Um, I was chatting to my neighbor, and then all of a sudden, he stopped his lesson and hit me with the infamous, I'm sorry, Jonathan, am I bothering you? (laughs) Perhaps you would like to teach the class. Now, of course, this is meant to be a rhetorical question, and you're supposed to say, no, I'm sorry. Um, but as I've shared a little bit, at 16, I was a little bit cheeky, so, so I answered, sure. <laughs> and, and he called my bluff and held out the piece of chalk for me. So I got out of my seat, went up to the front of the class, took the chalk, uh, picked up his textbook, asked what page we were on, which I don't think he was too happy about. <laughs> And then I quickly read through the paragraph and began my lesson. Uh, started talking about how the molecules were behaving like bunny rabbits or something. I don't really remember. I do remember it was a good lesson. I, uh, I, think, I think I helped everybody learn. And, uh, you know, Mr. Pereira was renowned for using those kinds of analogies to help us understand difficult concepts. So that's why I just followed in his footsteps there. It didn't take very long, though, before he started shaking his head looking at me with a look of, uh, you know, slight amusement, slight, slightly impressed, but also definitely annoyed, and, and just told me to sit down. So as I say, sometimes we bite off more than we can chew, and this was the case on that day in Biology 11. Uh, Mr. Pereira definitely bit off more than he could chew <laughs> when he invited me up to the class to teach. Little did he know at the time that was to be my calling in life. Um, We'll come back to talk about him a little bit later. All I'll say is I, I'm comfortable poking fun at him as we do have a good relationship still. So uh, so today, here we are, uh, and we're continuing our journey through the Lord's Prayer. And today, as we come to the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is a prayer that many of us recite on a very regular basis, a lot of us know the prayer very well, We're going to have a look today at how this second petition, Your Kingdom Come, may be biting off more than we can chew. So since January, we've been journeying through parts of Jesus' first public address, otherwise known as the Sermon on the Mount, and we went through the introduction of the teaching, the Beatitudes, and now we've come to this section of that teaching where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray through what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. And as we've now observed, the first part of this prayer is all about God. And through this, Jesus teaches us that prayer that doesn't start with God um, is in danger of concentrating too much on ourselves, where the focus becomes more on things that we're worried about, our thoughts, fears, things that we want, rather than focusing on to whom we're praying, praying to God. So Jesus begins by reminding us to whom we are praying and teaches us that we pray to our Father in heaven. Because we're all members of his shared family, the church, because 
God is our Father who loves and cares for each one of us and has the will to answer our prayers. And because he's our Father in heaven, he is the king seated on his throne. He's the creator, the sovereign ruler of all. He is able to answer our prayers. Jesus then provides seven examples of seven things for which to pray these seven petitions. And the first thing Jesus teaches us to pray, because it's the first thing he prays, is that the name of God would be hallowed, that it would be set apart, made holy, made known, represented, glorified throughout the world. And we observed last week that in the end, Jesus himself, Emmanuel, God with us, is the answer to this prayer, that his entire mission was to glorify the name of God and make it known, and that this was ultimately accomplished on the cross, the great moment when the nature and character of God was finally and decisively revealed, demonstrated, and honored. So this brings us to the second petition, your kingdom come. And so, of course, the first question we have to ask is, what is the kingdom of God? As you saw when we asked the kids, you know, they normally know the answers, but they're a little unsure of this one. The gospel according to Mark begins by telling us that Jesus began his ministry proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if any of you have spent any time in church, uh, then you've no doubt heard this term probably quite a lot. It does get thrown around in sermons and prayers. Uh, we sing about it all the time. But for some reason, it is sometimes difficult to define. And when we're presented with a definition, it's still a little blurry. Uh, it's difficult to fully comprehend because the definition isn't definite. And there's a reason for this, and we'll come to that in a little bit. But as we have been doing, we're going to take a look at the, the original Greek in which the scripture was written, and the Greek word that is translated as kingdom is basilia. And it does mean kingdom, it means realm, a country or region governed by a king that's subject to their sovereignty, to the authority, the dominion, the reign of a royal power, whether a king or a queen. And this is exactly what Jesus means. The kingdom of God is the realm where God reigns. However, he's not talking about a country or a region that's defined by political borders. So the prophecies of the coming of God's kingdom that we can read about in the Old Testament weren't talking about Israel's liberation from the Roman oppressors as they were expecting or the establishment of a political state. The kingdom of God doesn't just mean a place over which God would rule, nor does it mean a people over whom God would rule. The kingdom of God describes God's spiritual reign. The kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is a way of saying that anywhere where God is accepted as king. And that is everywhere where people accept God's rule, his rule in their hearts and lives, and they do this by allowing the Holy Spirit to take a hold of them and transform them to look more and more like God, to reflect his character as we've been talking about. And I was chatting with Andrew Hewlett this morning, and, and he was sharing how something he finds astounding about this is that there are people all over the world. Today is Sunday, 
and they are worshiping in all these different contexts. As we said, you know, some of them, the least, last thing they have to worry about is, is technical difficulties. Some, some are in hiding because uh, of persecution. It is amazing, though, that all over the world, the body of Christ is gathering to worship. Now, when Jesus began his ministry announcing the kingdom of God was at hand, he was announcing that one day the whole world would turn to God and accept him as king. And he was announcing when he came that this had already begun. So last week when we observed that the answer to the prayer, hallowed be your name, is Jesus. This week we can see that the same is true of the prayer, your kingdom come. God's kingdom, which was prophesied and foreshadowed in the Old Testament, was founded in Jesus, in Jesus' incarnation. And so when Jesus began his ministry announcing the kingdom was at hand, was coming, he knew that he was the one who was bringing it. And he also knew that everything he said, everything he did, served then as a revelation of what God's kingdom looked like, what it was all about. As we heard in our gospel reading this morning from Luke, Jesus says, I came to give sight to the blind, to cause the lame to walk, to heal the sick, to free the captives. And if we read on in the gospels, we can see that he did just that. And as our friend Daryl Johnson points out, Jesus also united natural enemies, two of his disciples, Simon the Zealot, a political revolutionary who was zealously seeking the end of the Roman occupation, and Matthew, the tax collector, who collected taxes from his own people on behalf of the Romans, who was seen as a traitor. Jesus also befriended sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. He gave women dignity that they didn't have in that time. He called them to follow him. He entrusted them with the most important moment in sharing the gospel message. If we remember, it was the women who followed Jesus who were the first ones to share the good news of Jesus' resurrection. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, his triumph over the grave, Jesus revealed what God's kingdom is ultimately all about. Just as we observed last week that Jesus on the dying on the cross is the final glorification of the name of God, Jesus' death on the cross is also the great moment when the kingdom of God is inaugurated, when the reign of the king was announced. And Jesus is the answer to the prayer, your kingdom come, because Jesus is the king that we are praying for. And we see on the cross that when Jesus was crowned as a king, it wasn't with the crown of gold, it was with the crown of thorns. When Jesus was lifted up, it wasn't onto a physical throne, in a palace in the center of the city. It was outside the city walls on a cross. And through this great moment, history was forever changed. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. He announced and demonstrated what the kingdom is all about. He announced and demonstrated he is the king. He announced and demonstrated that the kingdom of God was at hand, that it was already present, that it had come. Because as we talked about with the kids, you can't have a kingdom without a king. Or as Daryl Johnson puts it, the presence of the kingdom cannot be separated from the presence of the king. The kingdom is 
wherever the king is. And this is why when Jesus asks us to follow him, he's inviting us to be with him. And in doing so, to be citizens in his kingdom. And this is why on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus promised his presence. His presence in our hearts through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is why the presence of God's kingdom in this age refers to the reign of Christ, not in a specific place or country, not on a specific people, but in the hearts and lives of all believers. This is the kingdom of God, and it is already here. And it's here in this room. We are standing in the, or sitting in the presence of the king. We're sitting in the house of the Lord in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus began his ministry announcing that this kingdom of God was at hand, he was announcing the time was already here. But we should also not forget that throughout the gospel, Jesus also describes the kingdom as still yet to come. That all that he was talking about hadn't yet fully been accomplished. He was announcing that one day the whole world would turn to God and accept him as king. When Jesus was preaching and teaching, there weren't Christians all over the world following him yet. The prayer, the petition, your kingdom come, is described as the most clearly eschatological part of the Lord's Prayer, the one part of the prayer that most clearly does look towards the future as well. So while the ministry in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God has already come, we also see that it's a progressive establishment, that God's ultimate plan for his kingdom will come in stages. And we see this throughout God's big story, throughout the Bible. God's kingdom was announced in the Old Testament. It was announced in the covenant he made with Abraham. It was then founded. It was inaugurated in Christ's reign. And it's present now, already, in the hearts of all believers. But it will also one day be complete when God restores his rule over the earth, when all evil is destroyed, and God establishes a new kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth, as we read in the book of Revelation. So while the second petition of the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for God's rule in the hearts and lives of his followers, it's more than this. It's an appeal for the restoration of all creation, for the final establishment of God's rule over all creation, so that, as Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is for what Jesus is teaching us to pray when he teaches us to pray that God's kingdom would come. He's teaching us to pray for and work for the continual advance of God's kingdom. He's teaching us to pray for the day when this prophecy is fulfilled, when the whole creation will enjoy the full restoration, when the world will come to know God as their father and Jesus as their king. And he's teaching us that praying for that should be a constant daily concern for his disciples. So when we pray, 
the Lord's Prayer, as many of us do on a regular basis, and we pray for God's kingdom to come. We are praying for the present and the future, for what is already here and for what is not yet to come. Now, this means that to view the second petition as purely something we're called to do now, as purely sort of an ethical charge, misses out on, on the hope, the whole center of our faith of hope for a better future, of hope for what is to come. On the other hand, if we focus only on praying for the future, then we miss the demands of praying that the kingdom of God, the reigning presence of Christ, would be present in our hearts and lives. These are difficult demands. These, this demands living a life that is consistent with the kingdom of God, faith, as faithful disciples of Jesus, as children of God, as citizens of his kingdom. It demands living in a way that represents God and reflects his character, living in a way that submits to his rule, obeying his laws, his commands, his commandments, honoring him, loving and serving others, as well as proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to the world. This is what he asks of us. And so to pray your kingdom come is one of the most demanding prayers that we as disciples can offer because the consequences of the prayer are massive, are extensive. Not only does the answer to the prayer have consequences in our daily lives, as our friend Daryl expresses, the prayer is one of, if not the most radical things a human being can do. We are asking God to bring about the most massive revolution imaginable. When we're praying your kingdom come, we're asking heaven to come, to invade and occupy earth. We're asking God to turn the world upside down, to take our upside down world and flip it right side up. We're asking for radical change to the world as we know it. We're praying that the world would become unrecognizable, that things will never be the same. We're not reciting these words mindlessly or offhandedly. We're not asking for vain hope of a pipe dream. We are praying to our Father in heaven, the one who has the will to answer our prayer and the power to do so. And if you think about that, it's a little bit scary. If you think about it, is it something we really want? Do we really want to submit to the will of our king? Do we really want the world to change so that it becomes unrecognizable? Is this what we are praying for when we recite the Lord's Prayer together? When we sing all those songs asking for God's kingdom to come, are we ready for that? Or are we biting off more than we can chew? Now, as I shared earlier, my teacher bit off more than he could chew when he challenged me, but it worked out. Little did he know that it was to be my calling in life. Little did I know that when I went in for an interview to become a teacher at the Saanich School District, Mr. Pereira was the one giving the interview. <laughs> so we could recall my, my debut. And, uh, 
you know, and he was instrumental in, in getting me onto the list, even though at the time it was completely closed. He, he worked for me. So, as I say, we, we might bite off more than we can chew, but it has a way of working out. And if we think about praying for your kingdom to come, yes, it can sound scary, but only when we don't fully understand how much better God's way is. Only if we don't fully comprehend what it is we're asking for. Only if the definition of the kingdom of God is blurry in our minds. And if we process this petition in human terms, thinking of a human king, thinking of losing things we think are important. But when we remember to whom we are praying, to our Father in heaven, who loves and wants and knows what's best for us, it can be helpful to remember that we're not praying for loss, we're praying for gain. When we pray that God would turn the upside-down world right side up again, it's because we're praying that he would take the things that are wrong and make them right. That he would reverse the effects of the fall of humanity, return the world to the way he originally intended it to be for his children, who he loves. As he promised he will do in the book of Revelation, as we read in Revelation 21, a loud voice from the throne says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, nor for the former things, have passed away. This is what Jesus teaches us to pray. And it is in light of these things that we do pray, your kingdom come in our lives here and now and to the world in God's good and perfect time. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to be a part of your story of redemption of the world that we get to live in an age where your kingdom has already come. We do confess there are times when we don't think about what we're praying when we pray this prayer you've taught us. We confess there are times when we're afraid of things you have promised for us. So Lord, today we just come before you and put our trust back in you, our Father in heaven, who loves and cares for us and knows what is best for us and for the world. And we do pray for the day to come when every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord for the glory of the Father. We do pray that your kingdom will come. In Jesus' name, amen.